1: You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org/wnyc for more information.
2: Just before the new year, the Endangered Species Act turned 50 years old.
3: The act has actually been very successful. 99% of the listed species have been prevented from going extinct.
2: It's Monday, January 8th, but it's also Science Friday. I'm John Dankowski. In 1973, Congress passed the Endangered Species Act to save plants and animals from the brink of extinction. It's been revered as one of the most important environmental policies in U.S. history, and it might have even helped to save some of your favorite critters, like humpback whales, bald eagles, manatees, grizzly bears, or even Hawaiian land snails. So we're going to look back today at 50 years of the ESA. Here's Ira Flato.
0: Joining me is Dr. Judy Chi-Castaldo, biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services branch of Species Status Assessment Science Support. Joining me from Madison, Wisconsin, and she's not speaking as a spokesperson for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about how critical the Endangered Species Act is to conservation. What does it allow scientists to do?
3: Well, I mean, the stated purpose of the act is to provide a means to conserve threatened and endangered species, um, as well as the ecosystems upon which they depend. So that's a really clear and powerful statement, and and that is what it allows us to do.
0: So it's actually made a law, Mm -hmm. right, out of conserving species. Yes. And how many species are actually listed on it at the present time?
3: So that number changes all the time. Currently, it's uh, over 2,300.
0: Over 2,300? Um, well, yeah. If it gets longer, I would suppose that's that's a bad thing.
3: Um, not necessarily. That means more species are protected. It just fluctuates over time, um, you know, for many, many different reasons. Sometimes species uh, change, they're no longer considered a species, or some species may be split into multiple species, you know. So for many various reasons, that number fluctuates a lot.
0: And is it considered a very successful act?
3: Yes. So there are multiple ways to measure the success of the act, and depending on how you measure it, the answer is going to be different right so one of the goals of the act is to recover the listed species to the point where uh, they no longer need the protections of the act and can be delisted and in that sense relatively few species have been delisted due to recovery on the other hand another goal of the act is to also to avoid extinctions and in that sense the act has actually been very successful because very few listed species have gone extinct.
0: Wow, that is. Yes. Yeah.
3: So actually 99% of the listed species have been prevented from so going extinct.
0: 99%. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, let's get into some of the machinations some of the weeds about the act. Let's say I have an imaginary three-headed frog and I think it deserves federal protections. All right, give me the process involved of getting that frog listed.
3: Anybody? can petition for a species to be listed. And so once a species is petitioned, the services, they have to consider that species, um, see whether they are warranted for the protections of the act. That's the first step.
0: Mm -hmm. And and is that part of your job in analyzing that info?
3: Yes, exactly. So uh, I do the part where once it passes the petition process, there's a 90-day finding where we say that, yes, there does seem to be enough information um, that suggests that the species may warrant listing, and then it gets into the full consideration.
0: Now, 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 let's move forward and see what happens, because once my three-headed frog is listed, what kinds of protections does it get?
3: The act is actually pretty unique in that it also requires people to work actively to recover. Threatened and endangered species. So, when a species is listed, there are generally two types of actions that are triggered protective measures and recovery actions. So, for protective measures, um, that mainly includes prohibiting take and what are called interagency consultations. So, take is basically hurting or attempting to hurt a species in any way. And so that's prohibited, and that's pretty straightforward. For interagency consultations, so all federal agencies are required by the Act to help conserve the listed species. And so any time that an agency proposes to do a project that may affect a listed species, anything like putting up a dam, they have to consult with the managing agency.
0: Hmm. And does somebody have to keep track of them? once they're on the list?
3: Yes. Oh, for sure. Yes. So we have those protective measures, which are the the prohibiting take and interagency consultations. But then the other type of actions is recovery actions. And that means coming up with a plan for actually how to bring back the species uh, to a recovered state, defining what that recovered state looks like for each species, because that will look different also designating critical habitats, and finally checking on the species every five years or so to see if it's improving or not.
0: So let's look ahead for the next 50 years. What would be a successful 50 years from now?
3: I'm imagining that there will still be a lot of work to do in 50 years, even if we are very successful in the next few years, if that makes sense.
0: Have you analyzed at all how climate change might speed up the loss of species?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, not not me personally, but a lot of research is out there, right, about how um, climate change is accelerating the rates of species loss and biodiversity loss um, around the world. Yeah, I think that will definitely impact the workload of evaluating which species warrant protections.
0: Yeah, that's part of that whole 50 years from now, isn't it?
3: Oh, yes. Yeah. And beyond for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for Enlightening us today.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having
0: me. This is great. Dr. Judy Chi Castaldo, biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services branch of Species Status Assessment Science Support. She was joining us from Madison, Wisconsin.
1: WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature.
2: The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing, and as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Continuing
0: our conversation on the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, We're headed to the extinction capital of the world, Hawaii. Did you know that? To meet kahuli, also called Hawaiian land snails. These snails have beautiful stripy cone-shaped shells, and they come in an array of colors. There used to be around 750 species of kahuli scattered around the Hawaiian islands, but more than half have gone extinct. So what's it going to take to save the snails? Let's find out. Joining me are Dr. David Sisko, coordinator of Hawaii's Snail Extinction Prevention Program based in Honolulu, Hawaii, and Kiyahi Bustamante, Maui Nui Field Coordinator for the program based in Maui, Hawaii. Welcome to Science Friday.
4: Aloha, Ira. Honored to be here. Aloha, Ira.
0: Let me start with you, David. Why is Hawaii the extinction capital of the world? That's a great
4: question and uh, Hawaii is one of the most isolated landmasses on earth and so a lot of the animals that made it out here evolved without a lot of the pathogens and uh, other animals that are usually on continental landmasses like mammals and reptiles and so what made it out here evolved unique niches and you know when introduced species got here which we have very many of them. The, the animals here are um, just not well adapted to the kinds of predators that are now here.
0: And so how dire then is the situation with Kahuli? It's bad.
4: The Hawaiian Islands had over 750 species. Just to give you an idea that that's the same number of species that exists in the continental North America. And Hawaii is 1 1700th the land area wow. of North America. And so we had just this incredible diversity here. About half of that is gone already. And we're on the verge of losing another hundred species this decade without significant conservation intervention.
0: Wow. That that really is is something. Uh, Kiyahi is that because of environmental factors or do people love the shells and collect them? What's the reason for this?
5: You know, it's mostly to do with environmental factors, but at one time it was a trend to go into the mountains and collect snails, kind of like collecting baseball cards. (laughs) Really? Yeah.
0: Describe the snail for me. I'd like to know why they were so interesting. Oh, man.
5: The most incredible colors and shapes you've ever seen. It's common for people to see see seashells, I think, and be just blown away by their beauty. But these snails are on land and have just the same amount of beauty and elegance to their shells. So for that very reason, it became you know a popular pastime and something that the native people really, really revered. And we embodied them with our, our gods. They were known to be body forms of demigods They were kind of like the royalty of the forest. Wow. That's the kind of reverence that we had for them.
0: And that's one of the reasons why I would imagine it's so awful to hear that they're disappearing.
5: It is. It's really sad. And it's it's heartbreaking for a Native person who has been able to experience them. You know, they are so rare and very, very few Native people have been able to experience them or even know that they exist and and that they're going extinct. Wow.
0: Now that I've heard this, I'm really interested in your strategies to save them. Fill me in on that.
4: It's emergency 911. These things are are going extinct really fast. And so most of what we're doing is, is trying to intervene in extinction and stabilize populations. And so that includes... A large captive rearing program so we collectively between our laboratory and and other partner laboratories that are also rearing snails we have over 60 species in captivity many of them no longer have wild counterparts so they're extinct in the wild and so we're we're getting them into the lab we're getting their numbers up and then we're building these protected areas and we're we're getting them back out onto the landscape But honestly, like our our efforts for the next decade will be to just try and keep these animals on Earth.
0: How easy are they to breed? You have to go out and find them, bring them back to the lab and breed them. Kayahi, how easy is that?
5: Oh, it is not easy, Ira. Really difficult. Most of them are in really, really remote areas at the top of our mountains. Really rugged terrain, A lot of times we need to access these areas with helicopters and stay there for a week at a time, camping in the rainforests and pushing through miles of dense vegetation across ravines and gulches and streams. Yeah, it is not easy to find these things. And probably one of the most difficult, really needle in the haystack, kind of work.
0: And, and so once you get them into your little laboratory habitat, how easy is it to breed them?
4: Many of the species we're working with have really bizarre life histories. So they can live close to 20 years. They take five years to reach maturity. And once they're mature, they, they usually only give birth to one to, to seven offspring per year. So that's much different than a common garden snail which you know, can lay thousands of eggs over its short lifespan. So many of the snails are like dealing with a long lived bird or mammal. And the laboratory is it's kind of like an emergency room. You, you walk in and all the animals are in um, environmental chambers which are mimicking the conditions in the wild which are usually upper elevation areas that are cooler and more humid. So it really feels like an ER and you know it's a it's a decades long commitment to getting these animals through to a, a point where we could put them back into the wild
0: that that's amazing so i i'd ask then given all these difficulties how well are your strategies working here for saving them and getting them back in the wild
4: well our our strategies are working really well for the species that that we're we're bringing in for the most part the problem is the the logistics of scaling up. I mean, we, we've got 100 species across five islands that are going extinct, and we're a really small team. It's not just happening in one area, on one island, on one forest reserve. It's across private and public lands. We have the tools and the techniques to do what we need to do, but it's the capacity issue that's the problem.
0: So you're not really trying to get the snails off the endangered species list. You just you, you, you want to just keep them around, right?
4: Yeah, we're, we're trying to keep them on Earth at this point. And I, I don't think that they will be recovered in my lifetime, for sure. I think this will be like a multi-generational tag team effort.
0: We've been talking about 50 years of the Endangered Species Act. How does the act affect your work?
4: There are 44 species listed on the U.S. Endangered Species Act, 44 species of snail. About 13 or 14 of those are, are still extant or so still around. There's many species that are not listed that are extinct in the wild or will be very, very soon that are not even listed. But the U.S. Endangered Species Act has been crucial for snail conservation. Uh, you know, many of the species we have in captivity are around because of the funding that we receive from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And part of that comes from the U.S. Endangered Species Act. And so without, without the funding, we couldn't do what we do.
0: Now, I know that the governor of Hawaii proclaimed last year, 2023, as the year of Kahuli. What was that like, Keahe? How did that affect things and people?
5: Well, it definitely brought more attention just to the public people were exposed to the snails that maybe wouldn't have without it being the year the Kahuli. It also brought some recognition to some of the endemic snails on each island where people were able to vote for the snail that they wanted to be representing their island. So now there's a state snail for each island. So I was really pleased to be around for something like that and hopefully we'll see more years of the Kahuli to come. Yeah.
0: Well I want to thank you for for both of you for what you're doing and thank you for taking time to be with us today and good luck to you in the future. Thank
5: you Ira. Thank you Ira. Aloha.
0: Dr. David Cisco, coordinator of the Hawaii Snail Extinction Prevention Program based in Honolulu and Kiahi Bustamente, Maui Nui Field Coordinator for the program based in Maui, Hawaii. To see photos of these beautiful snails, and I mean they are really
2: gorgeous, visit sciencefriday.com slash endangered. Coming up on our next episode, we're going to continue our conversation about the Endangered Species Act, and we'll talk with scientists who are trying to save at-risk orchids and also one of the most endangered species in the country, the red wolf. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm John Dankosky. Talk to you soon.